But if you have your Bibles, you could turn to Proverbs chapter 4. We've been to Proverbs before in our Godly Discipline series, and uh, uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 4 this morning, which has a great text in it that I know will be a blessing to you as we kind of look at it in some detail and kind of focus more on the application of it. But let's pray, and then we'll get into our passage for this morning. Father, we come as needy beggars. We need your grace. We need the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We need power to live out the truths that we learn from your word. Father, we have spent uh, many hours looking at various disciplines of Christians need to practice in their life and they seem to stack up and and maybe when we look at all of them seem really insurmountable but father your grace is sufficient for us there have been many people who have done these things for many many years and father we know that by your grace we can learn to walk before you in holiness to practice those things that will help us know you better and love you more and give you more glory so may your spirit work through your word this morning may it enter into our hearts may it stick there and may the holy spirit use it for uh, many months and years to come that we might give you more glory we pray this in jesus name amen Let's say that you are one of those people who kind of likes to read a chapter of Proverbs every day, and it's the fourth of the month, and you're reading Proverbs chapter four, and as you're reading down through it, you come to verse 23, which says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And you're thinking to yourself, hmm, I wonder how you do that. How do you do that? How do you watch over your heart? I mean, what does that mean? Well, we're going to find out this morning as we consider practicing the discipline of heart guarding. The Bible, when you study the word heart, if you were to, you know, look at a bunch of Hebrew and Greek lexicons or dictionaries and look up the word heart, it's only used a couple of times in the Bible to actually describe the pumper or the muscle in your chest. The rest of the time, the heart refers to everything that is you that is non-physical. Your thoughts, your emotions, your attentions, your volitions, uh, uh, your mind, your soul, your spirit are all attributed to the heart. So the heart is really uh, the real you, uh, the spiritual part of you. Uh, That's what the Bible means when it says, guard your heart. It's talking about everything non-physical that's you. One of the blessings of being a Christian is having a new heart. We know this because uh, when Jesus died, as we just celebrated in communion this morning, he inaugurated the new covenant. Remember, he lifted up the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Ezekiel speaks of some of the benefits of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, where he writes, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So the Bible makes it very clear in this text and others that we receive a a new heart. And I think most Christians know that. But what most Christians have a hard time understanding is what that means. I think a lot of people think of a new heart as kind of like getting a new car. You get rid of the junker and then you buy the new one. 
It's a brand new one. It's a perfect one. There's no scratches. There's no bumps. Uh, there's, it's clean. There's no dust in there. You get inside. It smells like wonderful new plastic. It's new. Everything's new about it. But when you think about it, it's a Christian. When you come to Christ, yes, there are things that are new, but there's still a lot of sin in there. You don't become perfect when you receive a new heart. So the question is, if God gives us a new heart, and he does, what does that mean? If it doesn't mean he gives us a perfectly brand new heart and discards the old. Well, think of your new heart as kind of an old beat up car. That's all dented up and rusty. That's now in the shop. That has all the materials and all the tools available to restore it to its original pristine condition. That's what's new about it. When you come to Christ, you have now a Godward orientation in your heart. You think about God. You desire God. You want to please God. You want to seek God. You want to glorify God, which was never there before you came to salvation and were born again. Now you have this whole new orientation. That's the new part. A Godward worldview, where before you had a selfish and worldly worldview. And so God then, now that you are saved, puts you in the shop of restoration. And just like you would restore an old classic car, so now he wants you to restore your heart. He does it by giving you gracious gifts so that you can Restore your heart from its beat-up, sin-cursed state into the image of Christ. To be transformed from one glory to the next into the image of Christ. You know, he gives you the the hammer of Bible reading and the grinder of scripture memory and, you know, the paint of meditation and the polish of prayer to restore, begin to restore your heart back towards its original pre-fall condition, which of course never happens in this life. Romans chapter 12 verse 1, Paul says that we need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's an ongoing process. The renewing of your mind is the renewing of your heart. It's an ongoing thing. There, there needs to be a constant practice of the godly discipline so that you're being renewed. Into the image of Christ. But let's just say for a second that you were one of those people who bought one of those piece of junk cars and and then started spending an insane amount of money to have it restored. And, And you had some empty neighbors who didn't like it that you were restoring the car because they liked it in its old beat up state. And so whenever you left the garage door open... And didn't keep an eye on your car. They kind of snuck in there with their hammers and uh, salt water and, you know, pry bars. And they beat up your car. Now that would be counterproductive. Because you would say, well, listen, if I'm leaving the garage, I'm closing the door. Because I need to make sure my car progresses towards new, not old. Well, this is the exact kind of thing that happens when you receive a new heart. God says, okay, you're new now. You have new desires. You're going to go for restoration. Christ-likeness. Here's all the materials. Here's all the tools. Go for it. The problem is, is when we leave the garage door open. 
and the world and Satan come in and try to destroy what God is trying to do in our lives. And that's what we're talking about this morning. Guarding your heart. So look at Proverbs 4. I'm going to read the whole chapter because the whole chapter is good. I want you to look for a couple different themes. Listen for words of exhortation that encourage us to seek wisdom. Then look for the reason why we need to seek wisdom. And then what we need to do about it. Okay, those three things. Those three things. Exhortations to to heed wisdom. And then... The problem we're trying to guard ourselves against and then kind of the, the plan of action. That's how it kind of progresses. But, but listen to those, for those themes. I'm just going to read it. You can just listen if you want. It's a great chapter. Solomon, again, wrote the first nine chapters of Proverbs as a wisdom curriculum for young men. So he's kind of writing to his son. It's really for all Christians, but it's just, To give us wisdom so we can glorify God with our lives. And he says this, starting in verse 1. Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father. And give attention that you may gain understanding. For I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. When I was a son to my father, tender, and the only son in the sight of my mother. Then he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live, acquire wisdom, acquire understanding, do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth, do not forsake her and she will guard you, love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom and with all your acquiring gut understanding, prize her and she will exalt you, she will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a garland of grace. She will present you with a crown of beauty. Hear, my son, and accept my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in the upright paths. When you walk, your steps will not be impeded. And if you run, you will not stumble. Take hold of instruction. Do not let it go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, nor... And do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they do evil. And they are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. My son, give attention to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their body. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. 
So the entire chapter is just loaded with these exhortations. Did you see him? Hear instruction. Do not abandon instruction. Gain understanding. Gain, um, acquire understanding. Prize understanding. Hold fast to my words. Do not forget my words. Do not um, turn away from or forsake my words. Love my words. Keep my commandments. Acquire wisdom. Embrace wisdom. Hear, accept, take hold of wisdom. Do not let her go. Guard wisdom. And then, he. why are we needing to do all this? Well, he also says that. Do not proceed into evil. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Avoid. Pass by it. Turn away from it. Don't go in. Don't use deceitful words. Watch the path you walk on. So there you have this very interesting kind of just barrage of exhortations to heed wisdom. Why? Because there is wickedness in the world. And it will corrupt you. And therefore you must watch the path you're going to walk on. In the midst of Proverbs 4, we have verse 23, which is really like the key, the master key of everything else working in this chapter. And it's this, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And here we have, it's it's a pretty simple verse. We have this command, watch. We have the object of the command, your heart. We have the degree to which you are to obey the, the command, with all diligence. And then the reason, because from your heart flow the springs of life. So when you put all this together, there's really kind of three exhortations here. Three exhortations for heart guarding. And here they are. One, first the command. God says, I want you to guard your heart. Now the word watch, as the NASB has it, or keep, as the ESV has it, or guard, as the NIV has it, is an active command and it means to preserve, to protect from danger, to keep close, to put a blockade up, to put a watchman over. It describes the protecting of something. And here we are told to watch or guard or keep our heart, which is everything that is us that isn't physical. So your thoughts, your emotions, your volitions, your mind, what's going on inside there, your spirit. Now there are two kinds of things that we guard in life. Two general categories. Can you think of what they are? We first guard things that are valuable. Why? Because if we don't, they disappear. Secondly, we guard things that are dangerous. Why? So they don't harm us or others, like criminals. The heart needs to be guarded for both of these reasons. It is both valuable, and that, as we shall see, is kind of the mission control center of life. And not only that, it's dangerous because it's sin-cursed and corrupted. So, you have to both guard it from evil influences from without, because it's valuable, and guard it, keep your eye on it, because it's sin-cursed. Think of your heart as maybe kind of a a gun safe that's full of, of really valuable, collectible guns that are all loaded. You keep them in the safe, why? Because if you don't have them in the safe, somebody's going to steal them, and... uh, Also because they're dangerous and somebody might get hurt. Secondly, you are to diligently guard your heart. Notice the text's intensity here that the command is to be given. It's it's watch over, guard over, keep your heart with all diligence. Not some diligence, but all diligence. Or as the English Standard Version has it, with all vigilance. Or the NIV has it, above all else. 
This tells us that guarding your heart, according to God, is a huge priority. It's really important. You have to do this. And everybody knows, if you've ever bought anything online, you know, you can get it, you know, get the product you've purchased, uh, you know, in seven to ten days. But if you want it to come next day, priority mail, you're going to have to pay for it. They're going to hurt you. Sometimes it's going to even cost more than the thing you want. And the whole point is this, that when you have something that's a priority in your life, it costs you. It costs you pleasure. It costs you um, uh, things that you might want to do, maybe things you could even do that are acceptable to do, but you can't do them if you're going to maintain the priority. It costs you something. This is a huge priority. Guard your heart with all diligence. That is the full force of diligence. Now what's interesting about this word diligence is it's used, it's translated in other places in the Bible to describe a prison, a jail, a guard, or a guardhouse. You say, well, why do they translate it diligence? This is why. Because the text literally reads, guard your heart With all guarding. Which means diligence. That's why they did it that way. It's doubled up to emphasize just the absolute necessity and importance of guarding your heart. I mean, what do you think would happen if all the prisons decided that on the weekends they would just unlock the doors... Tell the prisoners that they were going home, that they were going to trust them to do the right thing, and when they, they'd see him on Monday and to just, you know, take care of the place. Well, they would come back on Monday and all the prisoners would be gone, and then they would be out doing probably what they did that got them in there in the first place. What do you think would happen if the bank said, well, you know what, we're going to trust in the goodness of the people of Burbank just to, you know, we're going to leave our, our money out on counters because it'll be easier to access. We're going to weld the safe vault open and we're taking all the security systems and the locks off the doors and just trust in the goodness of men. And, uh, you know, we'll have a sign up that says close for business and we'll just keep people out that way. What would happen? All the money would disappear. Why? Because if things are valuable and you don't guard them, they disappear because men are evil. And when things are dangerous, if you don't guard them, they harm you or other people. That's just how it is. This is why guarding your heart with all diligence is not optional. Third, you are to guard your heart for it is the control center of life. Notice it says, for from it, that is the heart, flow the springs of life. And you're thinking, what is that? Well, in that area in Israel, if you had a a flowing spring or an artesian well, it was just gold. I mean, it was the thing to have. Because if you have water, you have life. You can have crops, you can have cattle. I mean, everything's great because those kind of wells don't even go dry even in a drought. They're just great. And so it's really a figure of speech to describe life, but not really physical life because we're talking about the heart. And the heart is not a, we just learned, is not a physical thing, but it's everything non-physical. So we're talking about The spiritual part of you. Guard your heart for from it flow all the spiritual aspects of your life. This is why it's used in scripture this way. Like Zechariah 14.8 when Jesus' second coming is being described. Zechariah says in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. 
And that's not talking about, well, there's going to be a good rainstorm either. Jesus is going to be there. Like he told the woman at the well in John 4.10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living waters. Later on, he says in John 7.38 to the multitudes, he who believes in me, as scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And so when we talk about from it, the heart flow, the springs of life, it's really just saying that your heart is the operating system, the mission control center for everything else in your life. All of life flows from the heart. That's why it needs guarded. The problem is your heart is sin cursed and it's treacherous and treasonous and sometimes it lead you in bad ways. We all know this. You're reading your Bible, all of a sudden you have a wicked thought. It's like, what's that? We know what it's like to think evil and even to do evil because we've thought evil first. It's like one of those movies. It's a a favorite plot, a tension that writers love to use when, you know, the good guys get into some predicament and then they have to trust in the bad guy. Now, the bad guy's really bad, but he's the only one who has a little bit of information and he's not giving it to them, so they have to rely on the bad guy. And all the while, they're trying to get out of their predicament while at the same time keeping their eye on the bad guy so he doesn't harm them. I mean, it's happened. You just think about it and you're all smiling, going, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, Yeah, it happens all the time. Well, that's how it is with your heart. It's valuable and it's bad. As Jeremiah says, the heart is incurably wicked and deceitful above all else. Now what we need to understand here is what specific things must we do in order to guard our heart? We've looked at the text and it's like, okay, okay, we need to guard it because it's valuable. We need to guard it because it's treacherous. And because we've spent the whole summer talking about how to load up your heart with good stuff, we're going to focus this morning on how to guard it from corruption. Pretty much all the disciplines that we've talked about, you know, since May or whatever, have all been about loading up your heart, putting good things into your heart, storing up treasure in your heart. Now the question is, how do we keep that treasure from being plundered and, you know, the world from coming in and Satan from coming in and beating, you know, our classic up so that it's worse than it was before? Now let's just say that uh, you were living in medieval times and you were put in charge of guarding a very large castle. How would you do that? I mean, how would you do that? They say, well, these are your resources. These are the men. These are the things we got. Uh, Guard it as best you can. You would have to go around the castle and you'd have to look at all the walls. You'd have to look at all the gates and all the accent points. You know, the huge front gate, you'd say, you know what? This is what they're going to come. This is the roadway. They're going to bring the battery rams here. We got to figure out something because this is going to be the major point of access. We have some other gates over here. Some are a little bit smaller. Um, They're a little bit easier guarding some really narrow gates, which, you know, we could just I mean, those are not a problem. We could just put a couple guys to guard those. And so you would have to consider how your castle is going to be assaulted and, and how the enemy might try to enter into the citadel. And then you would have to put the appropriate fortifications up to make sure that evil didn't get in. 
And so the question, another question we need to ask is, so how does evil get in to corrupt your heart? What are the the gates? What are the access points? Um, if you're going to guard your heart with all diligence, what specifically does that mean? Well, your heart receives all of its information from your senses. Your five senses are the gates, the conduits, the accent point, of your heart. They are the way that information gets into your heart. So if corruption's going to enter in, it's got to come from the senses. Therefore, if you are going to guard your heart, you have to guard your senses. How many people here have read The Holy War by John Bunyan? Raise your hand. Oh, I see. Oh, praise God. We've got to just, you know, bless you, my children. Um, <laughs> the rest of you, let me tell you what it's about. John Bunyan, who, of course, wrote the second all-time bestseller book, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, also wrote another allegory called The Holy War. The Holy War is about uh, a, the town of Mansoul, which exists in the country of universe that was created by the King Shaddai. Mansoul was created perfect and was pleasing to Shaddai, and Shaddai had as his purpose to dwell in Mansoul and make it his permanent residence. The city had five gates, the ear gate, eye gate, nose gate, mouth gate, and field gate. The gates were impenetrable. Nothing could enter into the city of Mansoul unless the people of Mansoul opened the gates up from within. But Shaddai had enemies, enemies who had rebelled against him or were banished from his presence. Those enemies, because they hated Shaddai so much, decided to seek revenge upon Shaddai indirectly. Since Shaddai himself was too powerful to attack directly, they decided to attack his precious town of Mansoul. These enemies were Diabolos, Beelzebub, Legion, and Apollyon. They came to the city and they began to strategize about how they were going to capture the city for themselves. They all realized that the gates were impenetrable, and so the only way they could ever get into the city is to get the inhabitants of the city to open up the gates to them. The people of Mansoul were at a disadvantage because they were innocent and had never been exposed to evil or deception. The Hellions' plan was to send Diabolos towards the ear gate disguised in the form of a serpent. And to have him speak lies about Shaddai to the people in hopes of turning their heart away from Shaddai and towards him. Meanwhile, one of the other cohorts of Diabolos was to shoot Captain Resistance with an arrow. As Captain Resistance was the chief guardian of the ear gate. Diabolos came forward, started to tell lies about Shaddai to Captain Resistance, Lord Innocent, Mayor Understanding, Mr. Conscience, and Lord Will Be Will. He questioned the goodness of Shaddai and said that Shaddai was really keeping them in bondage, didn't have their best interests in mind as he did, because he wouldn't let them eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil which was in the midst of their city. He told them that if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would be like God. A good thing, since God is good. And that the very name of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, shows them that it's a good thing. Because it's both good and knowledge is good. 
And the reason that Shaddai didn't want them to eat of it is he didn't want the competition. While all this was happening, one of Diabolos' cohorts shot Captain Resistance in the head with an arrow and mortally wounded him so that he died. While Diabolos was continuing to defame Shaddai, the rest of those on the wall of the city started to believe him. As soon as Lord Innocence believed the lie, he dropped dead for no apparent reason. Without Captain Resistance and Lord Innocence, all the gates of the city were immediately opened and Diabolos and his evil band ran into the city of Mansoul and took over. The people of Mansoul greedily rushed upon the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and ate it. And there they made Diabolos their king to rule over them, which he agreed, and so was the fate of Mansoul. The rest of the book is the huge process that Shaddai has to go through in sending his son to redeem Mansoul so that they can be set free from the evil that they let in. Bunyan's... Bunyan's description, his allegory of Mansoul is, I think, the greatest treatment on the fall of Adam and Eve that has ever been written. It is masterful. And he nails it when he explains Mansoul as having five gates because that's the only way to get into a person's heart. Puritan Edward Reynolds in his works wrote, Quote, if a man shoot an arrow against a rock, it may be broken, but it cannot enter. Neither can Satan's temptation prevail against the soul without something within to give them admittance, end quote. Now let's consider the five gates to the heart that God has given you to guard. You have to guard these gates so your heart isn't plundered of the treasure of God's word. And so that it's not damaged by the evil of the world. First, let's consider the smallest gate to the heart, the mouth gate, the sense of taste. Satan at times is going to use this against you. I mean, some of you know if you struggle with eating that you can be tempted through the pleasure you receive through your mouth. Proverbs chapter 5 verse 3 says, For the lips of an adulteress drip honey. Many temptations include food. I mean, why do you think men take women out on dinner dates? I mean, think about it. Think about it. What happens when you go to a nice restaurant to eat dinner? What I want you to do is I want you to leave here today clued in and alive and awake to what's going on, what's trying to enter into your senses. You know, there's the low lights. And the nice chair, which appeals to the eye gate. There is the music, which appeals to the ear gate. There's the sense of food, smelling good food. The nose gate is being assaulted. You sit in these comfy chairs and you're holding hands across the table. An assault on the field gate. Dinner comes. You eat, you drink, and ascend assault on the mouth gate, the sense of taste. I'm not saying these things are necessarily evil. I mean, I got my wife that way. (laughs) But the point is, 
that a lot of people just go through life never realizing that this location is purposely structured to access my heart through the senses. You you need to notice that. I want you to stand back as you go through life and all of a sudden go, whoa, we're being assaulted here through these access points. We need to put up a guard so we don't let anything evil in. Of course, if you were to, you know, take drugs or alcohol, a controlling substance, you would put your entire citadel at risk, wouldn't you? Because even though that those substances, you know, might enter in through the mouth only, they weaken the resistance of your whole heart system and all the gates then open up. That's why there is so much vice and corruption and evil associated with those abuses. Why? Because people who take controlling substance, they relinquish control of the gates to their heart, and evil then can just run in, ransack, and plunder. The second gate, another small gate, is the nose gate, the sense of smell. And you think, well, that's not like, that's not like a danger, is it? It can be. It can be a sense of pleasure. And whenever there's pleasure to be had, there can be a sense of temptation, a leading, an appealing. In Proverbs 7, the naive young man who is led into immorality by the adulterous woman, we are told that she tells him, I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. All of those things are fragrant things. Now, there's a reason why billions of dollars are spent on perfume. It's not to scare people away. You have to make a conscious effort to see what's going on in your life. You know, and any guy who's been dating a girl and all of a sudden gets a little close to her and smells her perfume or the nice, her shampoo and her hair is like, there's temptation there through the nose, the sense of smell. I mean, what happens when you, you think about major department stores? The first thing you encounter in a major department store is the perfume. Main floor, main thing. Do you think that's an accident? Why don't they put it down in the basement with the furniture? <laughs> They're assaulting you. There's the lights, there's the music, there's the smells... There's things to touch. Hopefully some free samples of expensive chocolates. But yeah, they're working you, aren't they? They're working you. And you didn't, you know, I taught my kids, okay, now we go in here and just notice all. We're going to be assaulted now. You kind of go in, you know, and that's how it works. That's how it works. They're, they're assaulting you through the sense of smell. And you just need to Make sure they're not manipulating you. There are companies which do research to find out what smells make people buy the most. I mean, just try this. Go through the mall and walk through the different stores and smell. And what's going to happen? You're going to want 
to buy whatever. It's researched. You know, vanilla citrus makes people buy more of this. Now, there's a reason why they're cooking things in cooking shops. So you're like, man, if I were to buy a spatula, it'd make me cook like that. You know, I mean, they're working you. They're manipulating you. You go into, a, you know, some young shop. They're putting a bunch of ferrums in there, you know, you know, and they're, you know, they're just, they're, they're working you through the sense of smell. So just notice it so you can say, oh, that's happening. We're not letting that in there. We're not being drug around by the nose. Third, third conduit to the heart is touch or in Bunyan's term, the feel gate. And this is the bigger gate. I mean, your whole body is covered with skin and can be used against you. It's interesting that when the young naive man is approached by the adulterous woman in Proverbs 7. In verse 13, it says, she seizes him and kisses him. She gets tactile with him, right? She instantly assaults him because she wants to touch him, knowing that by touching him, it's going to lower his resistance and give her an access to the citadel of his soul. This is why 1 Corinthians 7, 1 says it is good for man not to touch a woman. And the word touch there means, it's used in other places to touch so as to ignite into flame, to start a fire, to ignite a fire. Guys, you get around a girl, you touch her, what happens? You're on fire. That's what it's saying. Don't touch. Don't touch. Why? You'll set yourself on fire. Thus, we must take extra precaution to watch what we're touching. You know, there's times I'm going through the department store and I see things. You kind of reach out. You ever do that? Just kind of touch some materials. Like, ha Especially if it's cashmere. You know, it's just like, ooh. It's like, I can't afford that, but I could use my visa. You know, I mean, what's happening, man? It's working. You're right there. It's working you. And then fourth, there is the ear gate, the sense of hearing. This is the second largest gate to your heart. This is the gate that man's soul fell by when they approached and spoke lies into the gate. There's all sorts of deceptions, lies, um, manipulations that come through your ear, just worldly trash into your ears. Just think how many people have been conned and and made to buy things they didn't want and, and worked through the ear gate. The naive man who gets seduced by the adulterous woman in Proverbs 7, listen how Solomon describes. This is like the end of how he summarizes everything that happens. With her many persuasion she entices him and with her flattering lips she seduces him and suddenly he follows her as an ox to the slaughter or as a deer to an ambush until an arrow pierces its liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life notice many persuasions and flattering lips she's being assaulted through the ears and he becomes like a dumb ox that just walks to the slaughter like a deer that walks into the ambush like a bird that purposely walks into a snare, not knowing it's a snare. In other words, he throws himself into peril by not guarding his ears. 
If you listen to music or talk radio or TV or anything that's audio, you ask yourself this. Am I opening my ears to have sewage pumped into my heart? Is what is going into my heart, is that helping me progress towards Christ? Or is it beating up my heart and making it like it used to be? You must put a guard up and say, sorry, I'm not letting that in. Because that's defiling. It's not edifying. The fifth and largest gate to your heart is seeing. Seeing. The eye gate. Researchers have kind of broken down the percentages of how people learn. And they estimate about 85% of everything we learn is from sight. We're always learning. If you just open your eyes, it's just information. It's pouring in all the time. I did a little calculation here. This would mean that the nose and smell gates would be about two feet wide. Pretty easy to defend. You almost have to turn sideways to go through them. The feel gate would be six feet wide. The ear gate, 20 feet wide. The eye gate, 170 feet wide. Like here to the other side of the parking lot. Huge. So if you're going to guard your heart, man, you've got to guard what you look at. Because if you don't, they're, it's going to, they're going to, Satan and the world are going to break down the gate and you're going to get your heart polluted. This is why Eve fell. Genesis 3, 6 tells us when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. There it is. He got her through the eye gate and the ear gate combined. And when she ate, the mouth gate. It's like David and Bathsheba. What happened? He's up on his palace. He looks, sees Bathsheba, lusts, and commits the act. Assaulted through the eye gate. Proverbs 4, verses 25 and 27, which follows our text, says, Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right or the left. Turn your foot from evil. And the whole point is, man, get your eyes on the right thing, not the wrong thing. Proverbs 6.25, speaking to young man who desires to maintain purity and stay away from the adulterous woman, says, Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her catch you with her eyelids. Don't lock tractor beams with her. No sinking up. And when somebody is out to do you harm, to seduce you, to lead you, there's going to be a fixing of the eyes. Do not stare into the eyes of anybody who's trying to do you harm. Do not let her capture you with her eyelids. You're like, call, you know, in the jungle book. Come to me. You know, pretty soon every eye starts spinning around. That's it. They just pried open. The eye gate and everything's flowing in. 
Psalm 119 verse 37 says, Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Job's solution to maintaining purity. Job 31.1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a maiden? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 verse 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. There are many texts in the Bible which tell us about turning our eyes away, not looking, not lusting, not staring. Don't have wandering eyes. Psalm 101 verses 2 through 3 says, I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. When I'm at home, I'm not going to let anything enter my eyes. I'm shutting the gate to all evil so I can focus on you. That's the intention of a person who wants to guard their heart with all diligence. So, some new believer comes to you and says, you know, I've been reading my Bible. And um, as I read my Bible, I've been... I've come across a lot of great stuff. I was reading Proverbs and I came across this verse which says, watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. How in the world do you do that? Now you know. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word and how clear it is. We are thankful that it teaches us how to guard our hearts with all diligence. Father, we know that our whole life flows from our heart, which is really the control center of everything that happens. May we be diligent to fill it full of truth, wisdom, light, so that we might grow in Christ's likeness and be transformed from one glory to the next in the image of your Son. And Father, may we also be diligent to guard our heart and that we know it's treacherous. May we... Check it always by your word, never by our feelings, never by our emotions, never by our experiences, but always by your word. And Father, may we keep the gates of our senses closed to anything evil so that our heart is not plundered of the truth we've put there and is not corrupted from evil without. And Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.